Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. He had given so much, especially in that same generation of being the older group of revolutionaries like Sam Adams, who were there at the beginning and they saw what had had transpired in those early phases of the revolution. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Daniel Wright discussing the complicated legacy of Charles Thompson, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Daniel Wright, and he'll be discussing the complex legacy of one of the founding fathers that's often not talked about enough, Charles Thompson. As historians, we have a special place in our hearts for Charles Thompson. Uh, He was the man on the ground. He was sort of the man who kept the records, writing the first draft of of the American Revolution as it happened. Yet as the uh, war ended and the early Republic began, uh, he tried to have a much more active role in the way we perceive the presidency and power in our government. And later, whenever he was asked to write a history of the American Revolution, who better than him, he was very resistant to that. Daniel Wright will get into all of the interesting details of Charles Thompson's life, and he wrote a fabulous article available at www.allthingsliberty.com. Be sure to check it out. In the meantime, sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Daniel Wright. Daniel Wright, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Daniel, you're a first-time guest. Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Well, I'm native to Colorado, and so I've incrementally been going east, and I've ended up in Florida. And so I I have always loved history. It has been such a passion so that if you could go back in time and look at my room, the walls would be timeline. (laughs) They would be drawn elements of world and American history timeline. That's how enthusiastic I was when I was younger and that has stayed with me so that even from Colorado to Marine Corps to Bible College to teaching now in classical academies in Florida, I have kept that joy and that that passion with me and I have been privileged to teach the elementary level in this last three to four years uh, in those classical academies in Florida. So, What first drew your interest into this topic? I would say that it's been a, a 
a few years in developing to a point, I, if I went back and, and looked at where my interest in, in Charles Thompson began, it would be when my dad bought me a copy of, it's a 1988 edition of McClay's Diary, the William McClay, the senator from Pennsylvania. And he, he knew my interest in colonial history and I got into that diary and started discovering these snippets, these references to Charles Thompson, and then quickly learned he was there the whole 15 years. And that struck me as all the coming and going, all the, the officials who didn't last through those years, he was the one steady force in that whole thing. And so that got me looking further at what else he was, why he stayed, how it is he did last all those years. And I would say that that then brings me to now and looking at he really deserved far more. And as the historiography on the American Revolution is getting richer and richer and there's so many avenues to study, I wanted to do what I could to encourage, let's explore this avenue. Let's look at this man that unfair, unfairly, in my estimation, is, is marginalized. He really shouldn't be. Daniel, for those who don't know, tell us who was Charles Thompson? Well, he was an immigrant from Ireland, and he came over with his father and brothers. And then on the journey... His dad dies, and uh, he is essentially stolen from and left penniless with his brothers on the shore of the American colonies. And he chooses, I'm going to set up in Pennsylvania, one of the most welcoming colonies for those of all kinds of backgrounds. And so he establishes himself there and he ends up living a very full life of 94 years from one of the, really one of the oldest among the revolutionary generation, 1729, when he's born, he comes over around 1739 or 40, and then he lives all the way out to 1824 and sees the whole spectrum of that first 50 years, roughly, of the revolution and aftermath. Daniel, you mentioned historiography earlier. I think that's an important part of what historians do that regular folks don't often get enough chance to work with. Um, what did historians say about him? Sure. Well, there there are a very small number of monographs or biographies on Charles Thompson, and most of them are going to be rather dated. There's nothing that I would say in the last, other than uh, Dr. Schlenther's biography in 1990, there's really, that was the latest in terms of time. You have to go back to 1979 or earlier, far earlier to maybe even turn of the century for a biography on him. And yet the general tenor has been prior to Schlenther's monograph that he doesn't deserve the marginalization he's received. He 
has merited a lot more consideration. It's kind of this this recurring theme of you should look at him more. You should understand him better. He shouldn't be uh, put in a closet and forgotten. And then Mr. Schlencher, Schlencher's book comes along, and, and he's also trying to rekindle that uh, deeper perspective on Charles Thompson, but also is very critical of him in certain regards. And so I wanted to also write this piece as a, well, he can get some things right and some things that give him a a shorter oh, understanding or a, a, a lesser understanding than he deserves too. So there's so much more to him for his service 15 years as the Secretary of the Continental Congress, preserving those priceless journals of the Congress and doing so much to frame that early historiography or the, the record keeping of how we interpret, how we look at the revolution. How do we, what do we take away from it? And not just designing the great seal and having his mark there as well as being a historian as well as a participant. And that's very rare. So many of the participants were not also historians, even though they were very conscious, as we know, of writing down what they thought and writing to each other very deeply about what they were doing. Daniel, in your article, you reference a phrase that might sound counterintuitive to many Americans. You talk about America's first prime ministry. Tell us about that. Sure. So he he had given his roots. He and so many of his contemporaries were trying to craft a system that wasn't completely new. It, it had some roots in a monarchy. It had some elements of a parliament. And so to craft a system that would have, with with Thompson looking at this as, how do we make this work? He wants to support Washington in this unprecedented role. And if Washington can be a ceremonial leader, a very clear head, like a monarch that's supplying the glue to this new regime, this, this new experiment, but also taking the load off of his shoulders like a home secretary would do of coordinating the daily operations between executive departments and legislative committees and having that very deep awareness of what it took to be a legislative participant and really the right-hand man to the president of the Congress. He was in that indispensable role to see what needed done and how to do it well. And so I think that with Thompson, he's seeing this as a let's bring this over into the federal constitutional framework. It says here we can have a role that takes on the mundane from President Washington's shoulders and leave him to be the the adhesive and the figurehead and the 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 visual symbol that he excelled at so well. Why was this idea so important to Thompson? I think it did because 
what Washington meant was so pivotal to the success of the experiment. And he wasn't about, it's got to be me, but he certainly wanted to craft something that was going to help everything endure and hold up to this big shock of pulling away and then what's in its place. And I think he saw that having been so intimately connected to the communication between both shores, the Atlantic world that gave him that unique awareness of, Hey, we, we can't just choose a president and he's got to then take up everything on his shoulders. We've got to fuse together a system that will split that office and also make it so that it's going to be not as vulnerable as an elected office seems to be when we, especially as we move from the 1780s to the 90s, it seems so, so tenuous. It's hanging by a thread. And that does get to what happens in the 1790s as the, the two camps politically solidify. And you've got Hamilton and his Federalists and Jefferson and his Democratic Republicans and it seems like it would just take the slightest bit of effort and the whole thing would crash. Daniel, what was Thompson's role after the revolution in that early Republic period? Certainly. So as he shifts from, he has been the secretary of the continental Congress. He's given that unfortunate task, (laughs) fortunate, but unfortunate task of going to deliver the, announcement to President-elect Washington and then escort him from Mount Vernon to New York and then facilitate the the transfer of power from there out of his office or what had been his role to the federal government. And so he essentially is given the, the graceless, thankless job of, here, you go out of town, we'll go ahead and pass this last bit of legislation that defeats the proposal. Actually, that's going to be after he is back from doing that task, but he's going to be getting out of town at that inconvenient time for his enemies to snap into action and get a secretary in place for that new federal government, as far as the secretary of the Senate, I mean. And then he is essentially standing around at the inauguration without any kind of, oh, good job. Hey, here's your official role. Here's what you're doing from here. And he feels that keenly and expresses that to his good friends like Robert Morris and and even John Jay as the years unfold. And he is essentially sent out into retirement back at his his house in rural Pennsylvania. And that's where he spends the the remaining years until and through that he's very busy in correspondence with friends like Thomas Jefferson and and others, John Jay, as I mentioned, and Benjamin Rush, as well as a number of, of other individuals, while he's also doing the work on helping frame David Ramsey's history of the American Revolution taking out some of those names that would have been expose type 
revelations and writing his own thousand plus page folio account. He was translating the Old Testament from the Septuagint Greek over into English, and so he was certainly busy, but he was dumped out <laughs> of the official limelight. Daniel, you write about the fact that many people will come to Thompson asking him to write uh, a real account of the American Revolution. Why do they do that? And I think more importantly, why do you think he was so resistant to it? That's that's excellent to consider more. John Jay was one of his most stalwart advocates. He wanted, and of course, John Jay went on to be the chief justice of the Supreme Court under Washington's administration. And he was continuously trying to encourage, maybe it's for the best, Charles, that you are out of office so you can get this done because no one else stands where you stood. You were there in that central place between the Continental Congress, the army under Washington, between the foreign nations we were trying to work with. You were, in very real way, the Homeland Secretary. You were the the prime minister in that central place. And you have this impeccable reputation of you tell the truth. You don't hide it. You don't obfuscate it. You don't kowtow to bias and personal prejudices, and you've got to then serve certain friendships or old alliances, and, and you would not then, that would not twist or skew your history. And so much of the historiography in those early years, unfortunately, David Ramsey included, has to be tailored has to be helped along so that it doesn't become this one of a one path the lionization this kind of blind uh, worship or this let's bring them all down several notches and show how how very human and frail and imperfect they are when at the same time those 1790s were making it very evident that they were very mortal and very human and very flawed and prejudiced and partisan in the choices that they were making. So that leaves Thompson in this place of he resisted that because there were bigger bigger causes or bigger reasons at stake here than just serving the historiography only as Let's get the story told truthfully, and then whatever that does to the people, we can withstand that. He saw that the country was so fragilely placed, so tenuously balancing on the edge, and he had given so much, especially in that same generation of being the older group of revolutionaries like Sam Adams, who were there at the beginning, and they saw what had had transpired in those early phases of the revolution and they were not keen on or optimistic to say oh there's a there's a plan b out there that's waiting to rise to the top if we take this particular trajectory down if we expose our founding generation as it is right now there isn't a b team that's waiting in the wings. Daniel, how do you think this article helps us understand the the revolutionary era better? 
I think it's it's an unfair characterization to say Thompson didn't since he didn't write that secret history that kind of oh expose that he failed in regard to historiography he was instrumental in preserving the thousands of pages of documentary record that the Continental Congress can then become this five volume plus set at the National Archives it can be this go-to source of that's what we have and we also have manuscripts and other materials of those early years in Pennsylvania politics and elsewhere that he was he had a hand in and that he was going to then be helping preserve and pass on just because he didn't write the one didn't mean that he does not then have a fundamental contribution to how we can not just understand the American Revolution based upon what people have said about him, but the very fact that we have so much primary source material in the first place to go back to and really renew our awareness and our perspective when we do go back to them past where it's gone in the 200, 300 some years of independence. So it's however many years do pass, it's still looking back to those primary source materials that can be seen in a fresh light. And thankfully, the man who would who told the truth is at the center of that, having preserved those materials, those materials for us to reflect on and read again. Daniel Wright, thanks again. Thank you, sir. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.